0: Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com Real Noom user compensated to provide their story In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week Individual results may vary
1: Hello and welcome to History Rage The podcast where we invite historians and the heritage community To rise up and rebel against the falsehoods of the past Where historians brutally behead all our common misconceptions I am public historian Paul Bavell And I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and good friend, Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week, dear listener, we're staying in the tumultuous times of the 17th century. And to guide us through this uprising, we have 17th century historian and author of Fighting for Liberty, the true story of the Monmouth Rebellion, and one true king, the true 1685 story, Steve Carter. Steve, welcome to History Rage.
3: Hi, it's good to be here. Feeling angry? Not yet, but I'm sure I will be by the end.
1: Oh, I'm sure between us, we can put your blood pressure through the roof. I'm sure we can. Now we've connected on Twitter, as I saw you had a few axes to grind with regards to tonight's rage. But for the fellow history ragers out there, would you give us an insight into your background and your career and how you ended up where you are?
3: Yeah, certainly. So um, I've always been interested in history since I was a kid. Um, I did a bit of wargaming. I did some reenactment, and I've always been fascinated with the 17th century. But back in 2005. I organized a, a huge reenactment of the the Monmouth rebellion from its sort of landing at Lyme through to the final battle and in that stage I learned a lot about the period I learned a lot about the characters and some things really struck me as being out of kilter and I was things didn't quite add up with the the history books didn't look right in terms of what was really going on and mm-hmm. that sort of festered with me for about 20 years until I had the courage to approach my publisher and say I want to write the book and fighting for liberty as the result of that pent up anger and aggression around what writing the wrongs of history about the Monmouth Rebellion.
1: Oh well you'll fit right in here. <laughs> um so just because you're talking to a couple of living historians, kind of reenactor types as well, who are you with as part of that reenacting?
3: Who oh, I I well, I start off with the sealed knot, rising to the rank of colonel in, in the Dolphins regiment, and then after after moving to France, I sort of give up reenactment. But the big two thousand five stuff around the moment of bread was really that was sort of my piece of resistance for my career as a reenactor. Um, and then I really switched back in sort of study mode and learning more about the whole thing because it really did yeah in pique my interest about why history and the books don't really add up to the, root to the real story.
1: Yeah, and I suppose that's an important thing because you can read as much history as you like, but if it If it doesn't make sense, that niggling doubt is, well, one man's niggling doubt is another man's fully funded PhD research, isn't it?
3: True, yes. I wish I had that opportunity.
1: But yeah, it is very true. Let's kick this rage off then. Okay, so welcome to History Rage. Time to get angry. Steve, with all of the gusto and emotion that you feel that it warrants, would you please tell all our resident History Ragers what you wish people would just stop believing?
3: I wish people would just stop believing that the, the Monmouth Rebellion was basically a bunch of peasants in smocks, ambling around Somerset, led by a dumb duke that had no chance whatsoever, and really take a step back and look at it from a, a realistic perspective about what actually happened and forget about that narrative, which is the common narrative, mm-hmm. and then word the Pitchfork Rebellion does get my blood boiling because it was not... A pitchfork rebellion
1: okay so so before we get into kind of dissecting the rebellion itself, it's an area that that myself and Kyle are not familiar with. you I mean, it's not our period of history we're either Second world war or medieval or in Kyle's case, ancient Greece. so can you give us the political background that brings this rebellion about?
3: yeah, okay it's I want I try and sort of make it a bit sort of simplified, but it ultimately. It starts with two big events. It starts with the execution of Charles I in sixteen forty nine and then the tipping point of the restoration of Charles II, Second, his son in sixteen sixty and from that point onwards England England is not a merry country we have this view of the restoration as being a jolly period with lots of romping and you know innovations. It was actually a really hot bed of Sedition, there was lots of, um, if you like, what could be described as tyranny these days going mm-hmm. on and a suppression of thoughts. But there was also a, an underlying, if you like, ripple throughout that period, which was around Charles II and his potential marriage to Lucy Walters and his child, the Duke of Monmouth. And there was always an undercurrent of was he legitimate, was he not legitimate throughout this period. Yeah. And Ultimately, it, it starts to boil up as Monmouth reached maturity. He becomes quite a senior officer. In fact, he commands the, the British Army. And you know, I've read the accounts. and He's actually quite a proficient officer, very diligent in his duties. And ultimately, he ends up fighting at Maastricht. He fights against the, um, at St. Denis with the, his cousin, Prince William, against the French. Um, and then ultimately, he fights the, the Scots and beats the Covenanters at Bothwell Bridge in 1679. But he's also at the same time, there's this political current going around and there's sort of plots and you know, the sort of the whole religious Catholic Presbyterian movements going on and building up. And we see the beginnings of the Tories and the Whig parties at the same time as this is going on. And we start to see a bit like today, a very much a, sort of a almost a divide in the country between those that believe that Parliament should be, if you like, above the king and those that believe the king should be above parliament. And mm-hmm. top of the list, if you like, is Charles II's brother, the J- J- James, Duke of York, who it does a very clever job of manipulating his brother. And his brother, Charles, King Charles II, has, has a very good way of balancing the two parties. He always plays off one against the other. So if the Whigs get too powerful, yeah. he'll, he'll support the Tories. If the Tories get too powerful, he'll support the Whigs. And then by 1681... Monmouth falls out of favour, he gets sent, to, basically, he's, he's exiled. And James, Duke of York, takes over. And after, from that period onwards, it becomes very clear that James is doing everything he can to stop the Whigs coming back to power. But also, his brother's very ill. He's in and out of illness throughout this period. And there's a really telling episode called the Black Box episode, where James, Duke of York, actually instigates an investigation into Monmouth's marriage and publicly announces there's there's no black box holding the marriage certificate in existence. However, he carries on looking for this marriage certificate six months after he published the declaration, there's no black box. Interesting. But at the same time, they also then have a plot called the Rye House Plot in 1683, which basically sees most of the Whigs executed on hearsay evidence that they may have been involved in a plot. And behind that is effectively people paid by James. So, this undercurrent, people are going to exile, people are executed. And we find all the Whigs, or most of the Whigs, who are angry and enraged by the whole um, Catholic proposition of James, of King James, as he would become, in exile in Holland, where they're sort of building up a head of steam, trying to think about ways of invading the country and, and deposing him. Okay,
1: so this is not just, you know, the, this isn't just noblemen getting disgruntled with members of the royal family, a la the Wars of the Roses. There are actually people being killed. In yes. amongst Monmouth's social and political circles with, with the almost invisible hand of, uh, of the king's brother.
3: Yes. And that's a, there is this invisible hand and it, it's something that history is whitewashed out a little bit because they don't want to make James II and the Stuarts are very much the heroes of the world, of the people. They're, they're, if you look at any media, the Stuarts mm. are, are very popular and anything said against James is pretty much, you know, it's heresy. So that's created this this momentum around him as being you know, the sort of supposed king that he should be king, etc. But actually, he's quite an evil, wicked person, and he's a very tyrannical leader when he becomes well, king.
1: Well, he's that bad. We get the Dutch to invade.
3: Well, you do, and and that's that's where this all starts because the actual the forerunner of the William's third invasion is actually the Monmouth Rebellion, and this is where my if you like my interest peaked because. The history books will tell you that William of Orange planned this to minute detail he made sure that Willi- uh, that Monmouth would fail in his invasion and you know and therefore set himself up for royalty and become the king later the truth is totally different William is helping finance Monmouth rebellion he's supporting the counter the, the other invasion that takes part in 1685 the Scottish invasion you know these guys are buying equipment in Holland storing them in Holland under the eyes of the Dutch government, they're renting boats in Holland. This is not a, a secret society with a few pitchforks. The Earl of Argyle buys a weapons for over 10,000 men. That's a big army.
2: So equipment for 10,000 men's quite a lot. So the regular and fairly simplistic view is that Monmouth turns up to Sedgemoor with an army of peasants and is soundly beaten back. Um, but who are actually backing and supporting these people and providing them with equipment, supplies, support in general?
3: Well, that's and a, don't forget intelligence. Intelligence and the, the intelligence plays a massive part in this, by the way. Intelligence. Mm. Of course. The government, the government intelligence network is massive, and, and that has a big impact on the, on the rebellion. But ultimately, who's backs who backs Monmouth and Argyll? It's mm-hmm. the Whig movement. He's funded by supporters who contribute and supply weapons and supply equipment into his coffers. And it has to be remembered that the English and the Scottish invasions are under the same umbrella. They're coordinated to take place, and it's a coordinated plan that they're following. So, yeah, the funding is coming from weak supporters. Some of those weak supporters, mm-hmm. like the Earl of Devonshire survives, and Lord Brandon survive and later return with William and his army. So it, it's it's these men have got a, a deep-seated you know, hatred of of the... Stuart monarchy, and therefore they are funding it, and and that's where the money comes from. So, yeah, and that gives them the ability to buy some of the very latest equipment. I mean, the the, the one of the myths about the pitchforks army is is that yeah, the are peasants etc. When you read of a royalist account, this is government account of the of the rebel rebel army, then they talk about the the cavalrymen, weak cavalrymen, being armed with quad barrel pistols and double barrel carbines, fully armoured and equipped better. Than the government army is, you start to get a feeling yeah, that somewhere there's a bit of a disconnect. Yeah,
2: that's top of the line equipment for the late seventeenth century. That's amazing level of armament.
3: It is. It's it's actually a really impressive. I mean, when you look at the, again, you know, again, the history books will tell you, yeah, you know, that there was about a thousand muskets is all they took across into England. But when you actually look at the the spy reports, because all this this intelligence I'm using here doesn't come from the mainstream history books. It comes from the spy reports that are in the British Library. And those are really extensive, detailing exactly what Argyle is putting in his boats because they get all the... Again, basically, you remember that 17th century is no different to now. It's all about money. So if someone buys something, there's a register for it as an invoice. And if something goes into Mm -hmm. a ship, there's a bill of lading. All that was captured by the, the government spies. They knew exactly what was being acquired and purchased. And they had reports of it. And that... Is an untapped source of information that I've really tapped into, ultimately, to find this stuff out. And it's really frustrating that it's taken me to do it, not anybody before that. It's really quite, yeah, one of my little bugbears. I, a, I don't know, yeah.
1: Steve. Take the book sales. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, hopefully, yeah, the book sales are good. But it's it's getting that message across because I don't know what, you want know what the next question is, but I certainly think that yeah. there's a lack of historical research that goes into it because everybody writes Monmouth Rebellion off is a bunch of peasants with pitchforks. So they write it off and they don't really do proper research.
1: And um, while we're kind of talking about the the people who support this and things like that, I'd always viewed that the you know the dislike and the contempt for James II is pretty much down a Protestant versus Catholic line.
3: Is there more to it than religion? Absolutely, absolutely more. It's it's it goes down to that whole principle of Parliament over the King. So in other words. Absolute monarchy or monarchy under the influence of the, of the parliament, ultimately. That's the big, that is the driving force behind this. Yes, there is you know, there is a religious element to it. But what the Whigs do not want to have is an absolute monarchy, the same as Louis the Fourteenth. Mm. And you've got to remember that at the time we're talking here, Louis the Fourteenth has embarked on his persecution of the Huguenots in France. He's invaded most of Europe. And Monmouth was actually... One of the things that happened with Monmouth was he was invited to become general of a coalition army of of, of European states to fight the French in sixteen eighty-five. And that's where some of the equipment comes from, and some of the weapons and the Brandenburg artillery, for example, and the other some of the other officers are released from coalition armies to go and fight with Monmouth. So it, it's you know it's pretty much a we don't want to see Louis XIV's reign in in England is really the driving force, not Catholics, Protestants. Hmm. It's it's the absolute monarchy and, and and what they're they're fighting against.
2: Echoes of the Civil War still sort of carrying over.
3: Yeah, there is there is an echo of the Civil War. It's 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 a Civil War that's matured. Hmm. So you know they're no longer most of the forces. I mean, a very small fraction were for not having a monarchy, i.e., pure Republicans. Yeah. The majority of the weak supporters and Monmouth and Argyle supporters wanted a monarchy. They weren't deposing the monarchy. They just didn't want the monarchy they had, yeah, just not, not the monarchy option, James. Yeah, just not that monarchy.
1: Yeah, looking for the sort of constitutional monarchy that we can have now. Yeah,
3: and that's and that's why if you look at what happens in in the continent, you know, William supports Monmouth. And one of the ironies here is that. Do you know the last place Monmouth was before he got in his boats? The Hague with William and his sister and his sister-in-law. So so he was, Monmouth was there in the Hague, a country that is supposed to have pushed him out of the country, supposed to have yeah, exiled him, supposed to have ex- tried to execute him for the good. The last people he sees is pretty much William, the future William Third, And that says it all to me. When you read that mm-hmm. and you go, okay, so William was planning for Monmouth to fail. doesn't really add up because you have to have really good hindsight to to really see that Monmouth's going to fail.
1: Okay, so looking at the forces that Monmouth brings then, and you've mentioned that the term Pitchfork Rebellion is particularly unfair. What and who is making up Monmouth's forces that he's he's raised for this
3: uprising? Okay, so if we look at, um, we separate the two campaigns out, Scotland and Argyles in Scotland and Monmouth in England. Monmouth arrives with basically 83 soldiers, which doesn't sound very many. However, the vast majority of those are experienced veteran officers. So I'll give you an example. One of them has had 15 years service in the Brandenburg Army mm-hmm. as a captain. Colonel Folkes was in the Brandenburg Army. Um, Colonel Matthews was in the British Army. Colonel Bovitt was in the New Model Army, in fact. Colonel Holmes was in the New Model Army. These guys have got decades of experience in the military experience. Yeah, and they've got, They've recruited a whole load of junior officers underneath them that, that will support and help build the regiments up. He's come across with flags and colours to model an army. These didn't just miraculously appear out of thin air. He's come with them, and there, there's reports of them making the covers. So he knows exactly how much each how the company is going to be formed of. He knows how big the regiments and the battalions are going to be. And he's got the weapons for that size army. So the people who join him are supporters of the of the cause that have been around for you know, 5, 10, mm-hmm. 15 years. And they have advanced notice that he's coming. Um, a large gathering of men are in Taunton way before he lands. And it's only by pure chance that one of his letters is intercepted by the sort of government agents that they have advanced warning of his landing and therefore the militia rec- are come out. If the militia hadn't come out, then the army probably would have been bigger and the marched London quicker. But at, when you look at the, the day-to-day people, they're all like us, what we call Middle, Middle England. They are... You know, working class people, that are also you know, educated, well educated. They're professionals, people. Their families. It's a real mixture of people, and there are some important people involved in that as well, who ultimately go into have to go into hiding because James issues a warrant for their arrest, and that pushes a lot of the senior Whigs, like the Earl of Macclesfield, into hiding, uh, which means he can't lead and be part of the uprising. So, you know, intelligence plays a big part, but the, the key. So the Monmouth army is, is people who want to fight for the cause and want to see James deposed from what they feel is a unauthorized yeah. rise to power and the, and the throne, if you like. So they, they seem very much that way.
1: Yeah. So in terms of, we we've talked, we've talked a little bit about the kind of the equipment that he's equipping this army with. So is he, am I right in thinking then he lands with 83, well, not soldiers, officers. So that that's his command staff that he's going to land with. And then yes. he's, the plan is to actually raise the rest of the army within the UK. So it's less of an invasion and much more of an actual uprising of British civilians.
3: Yes, it's it's a, so it's yeah, I mean, he 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 quickly raises the men. So within, within two days, he's got about 2,000 men in his army. His design is forced to, to number 5,000 is what his, what appears to be the number of his army. So it's about 3,000 foot and about 2,000 cavalry is what he's trying to get to. But yeah, he's he's got the people that join him are all keen, eager recruits. Some have got military experience, some haven't, but they're all waiting for him and they're all ready to join up. So it's not a, it's not as if he's just turned up and raised the color. It's it's these guys are waiting for him, and he actually turns up late. He turns up eleven days late. So yeah, you know, that's where the intelligence slips out and people get ready for him. If I
1: can just, what are the major engagements then that we're dealing with from him landing to? I mean, we we know that the his final engagement is the Battle of Sedgemoor. Yeah, we, what's in between landing and Sedgemoor in England? We'll come to Scotland, the Scottish campaign, in a moment. But in England, what's between the two?
3: So on landing, he establishes his base at Lyme, and it's very much a military base where he's recruiting, training, and equipping his new army. There is a, a, a an event that takes place, or a skirmish that takes place at Bridport, and that is where he. Because the militia have been called out, the militia occupy Bridport, they occupy Taunton and, and start to try and surround him. And he has to march from Lyme to Taunton. And obviously Bridport is only like 10 miles away. So with the, the Dorset militia that close, he has to do something to neutralise mm-hmm. them. And he sends out a raid, a party to raid and basically you know, break up the camp and try to cause as much disruption on, on the militia as possible. And that's the first of battle. And there's an encounter in Bridport, it's Happens in the early hours of the morning. The Whigs achieve their objective, i.e., they do beat up the militia quarters, and the militia no longer really take an active part against him um, from that direction. However, his cavalry are defeated and his infantry are victorious. So there's a, there's a, a situation where his cavalry are beaten, and Lord Grey starts to get his, his sort of bad press. But that is the first encounter. From there, as he marches north, he, he encounters the militia at Axbridge, uh, sorry, Ackminster. And Axminster, there's no real battle, but basically the Monmouth's fame and glory break the militia of of the Somerset militia who are marching against him. Because there's a rumor that actually Albemarle, in charge of the Devonshire militia, has changed sides and it's a big trap. So again, Mm -hmm. he wins that battle or that encounter through his fame. Then there's a a number of small skirmishes between his cavalry and the small force under uh, Churchill, which is another rant I'll go on to later. Um, and then finally, um, when he marches north, there's an encounter at Canesham, which again is under, under in, uh, not understood that well. It's, it's a, an important event because it's, it stops, effectively, Monmouth's high tide, if you like. He, he reaches Canesham under bad advice to take Bristol, and um, although he effectively wins the skirmish at Keynesham, he it's overnight he withdraws to Norton St. Philip, where there's a really large encounter between the government army, under Faversham and Lord Churchill and Monmouth, and Monmouth wins that victory. It's a, it's a. Historians again have underplayed it because the mighty Churchill mm. loses the, the skirmish or yeah. the battle, but ultimately, it's a victory for Monmouth. But his men have been on the mar on the road for in the rain for like, ten days, and it's yeah you know, he hasn't had a break. And after the battle of Norton Saint Philip, which ends in the rainstorm. The last units that launch into Froome don't get there until two o'clock in the morning and he has the rest of his army. And that really give that pause gives the government forces time to reorganise. And Monmouth is running out of money, he's running out of food supplies, and he's really got one option, which is either to to make a bold move to, to London via Warminster, which he starts to do but the government army cuts him off, or retire back to safe zone around Bridgewater, which is ultimately where he he, he knows he can get supplies and provisions. He can rest his army for a bit and then look for an opportunity to outmaneuver his old friend, the Earl of Faversham. So and that's really the. In a nutshell, the march. And it's and that's and I'm going to quickly rant a little bit. That's really where I first got my inkling that history books weren't quite right. They describe this as an amble round Somerset. He's actually using all the main roads. He's using the main roads. He's got people in his army that are local. They know everywhere. So he's not ambling around Somerset. He's actually marching at the same rate as the government army marching. He's recruiting as he goes Mm -hmm. along. That always takes time. and He's moving from town to town and billeting, not billeting his men in the towns, but basically basing them in the town, which takes longer as well. So all these factors add up, but he's certainly not ambling around and he's using the main roads of Somerset, not just having a holiday, touring around the country. He's not
2: slinking in back alleys. He is marching from town to town.
3: Yeah. Yeah, he's marching for towns, and he's also using the roads, and those, in that period you'd have used, you wouldn't have one column, you'd have had multiple columns moving, using different tracks and, and yeah. paths, gets to places. You'd have had a screen of scouts and uh, skirmishes, yeah, effectively a screen around your army, and that's constantly clashing with government forces. So it, it's he's doing the proper things, he's doing the proper military duties yeah. of the time, he's not ambling.
1: Yeah, this, is, this isn't a rabble. it's an army that knows how to behave like an
3: army behaves. Yes, and he's, he's a general, he's a He's experienced general. He's led armies in the battlefield, and been victorious. So he knows what he's doing. So what's going on in Scotland in the meantime? Well, Scotland is a is an interesting one. Argyle lands in Scotland. I I put down Scotland to being he wasn't Argyle wasn't defeated by the government. He was defeated by himself ultimately because throughout the Argyle Scottish campaign, he's elected or as commander and general of the army. But he's got a council of war he's got to deal with. And he's, he's surrounded by spies. His first plans all failed in 1684 you know, because of a spy ring was inside his camp. So he's really isolated himself from everybody. He's keeping himself right to himself.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but he has to have a council of war because he's Scottish. Um, and that seems to be the, one of the biggest failings of the Scottish armies. They tend to always have councils of war, which always disagree with the
1: <laughs> Nothing fights like a committee,
3: do they? Exactly. So he's, he's basically fighting on two fronts. He's fighting his committee and he's trying to fight the government. And his objective, is he's promised to Monmouth, was that he will land in Scotland, secure a strong base where he can recruit his army of 10,000, and once he's got to that point and he gets news that Monmouth has landed, he will then strike out and basically try and take uh, Glasgow. His his objective, therefore, is to pin down as many government soldiers as possible in Scotland to stop them taking part in anything south of the border. And he Mm -hmm. achieves that objective. What he doesn't achieve is recruiting his army because, again, you know, since he left, he left the country in, in 1683 from memory. Um, his lands, Argyllshire, uh, Earl of Argyll, one of the richest people in Scotland, owns the mm-hmm. whole of Argyllshire. That's pretty much his fiefdom. Um, but it's been occupied by government forces for like four years who have been yeah, not raping and pillaging, but they've been pretty much harshly taxing and taking cattle and, you know, levelling grudges, yeah. if you yeah. like.
2: Suppressing that
3: area. Suppressing, yes. that's the word suppressing, yeah. So yeah. they've suppressed the countryside and he turns up and he, he wants to go to Inver- 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 Inverary which is his capital. He knows it's a safe location, it's a good secure base it'll take a navy fleet and a bombardment and strong armies to take him out of Inverary. But he can't get the Council of War to agree to it so he ends up sort of taking a half-hearted approach, that sort of middle ground each time, okay, we won't, in, we won't go straight to Inverary, what we do is we go to the Isle of Butte and then we'll do some expeditions to find out where the best landing is. Then we'll go to the Cow Peninsula, and then hopefully I'll get through, you know, through Guile I might be able to get the council by accident yeah. to agree with me to get in, in So it's it's pretty much a campaign where he's on the upper hand, he's winning. And unlike Monmouth, our Guile's got 300 veteran Scottish soldiers who have been fighting in Europe for 10-15 years. These guys are not just elite, they are veteran elite if you like it turn that term these guys are really good soldiers um with the best and latest equipment so our guy's been buying equipment for like two years you know he's been you know building up a stockpile under the noses of the the, the government agents monmouth has got basically three months to do it so you can see the bit of imbalance there on on the 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 equipment well they do share some stuff so yeah so our guy's got a, a lot of equipment what he struggles with is to recruit an army he gets up to three battalions of foot and two troops of uh, three troops of um uh, of cavalry but it's it's enough to to quash and to, to neutralize Athol who's got an army of 6000 in Inverary by the by this date and his the other opponent is the earl of Dumbarton with another army of about sort of 3000 4000 regulars scottish army and we've got another force of about 3000 under the, uh, the um, duke of Dundee marching south from southwest from um, Aberdeenshire. So Anagar's got about 2,500 soldiers. So he's pretty much in the middle of it, but he's tying all those men down, which is his job, to be totally honest. Then the Royal Navy kick in, and he's put all his supplies in a little island called um, Ilingirig, which is up in Scotland. It's, in, it's a really beautiful location. Um, but he's faced, although he's got a quite large fleet, he's got... Dutch sailors that do not want to engage the Royal Navy. So he's pretty much sat in a situation where he's got a castle, all his magazine, all his stores are in this castle and the, the Royal Navy sail into the lock and basically take possession of his magazine. But he's seen mm-hmm. this and he's marched where? He's marched east already. Outmanoeuvres the government. The government army have not got a clue where he is and then he's spotted near Dumbarton Castle. And then the Earl of Dumbarton, who's in Glasgow, realises that actually he's been outmanoeuvred and rushes his cavalry north and they luckily just about intercept Argyle, who then is faced with either fighting a large major battle with an hour depleted army of about a thousand or trying to sneak out again and, and outmaneuver them. And he tries to get across the hills and his army disintegrates, um, over the, going to kill Kilpatrick, except the hundred veterans who remain across the Clyde, march south and defeat a superior government force of cavalry in a battle. So you've got about seventy, by this time seventy weak veteran foot attacked by four squadrons of two hundred cavalry, and you would put your odds if you like, if you heard that on the battlefield. Well, four hundred cavalry, uh, uh, sorry, two hundred cavalry against seventy infantry. I think I'd go with the cavalry.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd put twenty guineas yeah. on the cavalry. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Well, you'd have lost because <laughs> he only God. loses five men and he defeats the cavalry. And marches off, although he gets lost. But anyway, that's a long another story. <laughs> Eventually, <it's>, uh, <laughs> but this is, this is actually another, this wasn't our guard. this was um, his, his sub commander um, yeah. who basically takes over that role. So it, it, that, it's a, an example, if you like, of these, how really good skilled soldiers can do anything ultimately. And the only thing that really beats them is time, energy, and a council of war.
1: Once again, a committee defeats everything. Coming back down to the south of England then, I'll just slip this last question in there before we kind of go back onto the uh, ones that we'd, we'd sent you in advance. So I'm sorry to keep putting you on the spot here. So of course, the game's up at Sedgemoor. Yes. What happens at Sedgemoor? How does that battle play okay,
3: out? Okay, so this is, other, this is the other, if you like, the, the other moment that, of realisation that history books are just totally wrong. Was the, There's a number of factors. First of all, most historians use James II's account of the battle which was written a couple of years later, possibly a year later. And he, James II, throughout the campaign, is writing letters. By the way, just, I'm just going to set the scene here. He's writing letters about the government army. He's telling, you know, what companies and what battalions there are. And then he writes his battlefield account afterwards, and it's totally different to what he was writing at the time. And the archives also back this up. So the government army was not the same government army. It was bigger than the one that the history books put in. There's far more cavalry than history books have, and certainly the infantry battalions the main battalions were larger, and then what we call what tends to be called Kirk's Brigade, the famous brigade which we'll come back to, was actually really tight and small because it was it was doing lots of different duties, including artillery train guards and all sorts of stuff. Anyway, so so the Monmouth's in Bridgewater and Faversham is waiting effectively waiting for tents. It sounds a bit bizarre. But um, after Norton St. Philip, he realised that Monmouth was a dangerous character and he could not risk marching within a day of Monmouth's army because of fear of being attacked. Mm-hmm. So he sends he sends out messages to the, the government yeah. ordinance and he ends up getting tents for all his infantry because he realises, again, any military general knows this, that an infantry unit has to be in tents, otherwise it will get surprised because the tent structure of the interior was very well organised. You could form up your army really quickly and march off really quickly, but in a billet in a village, you're a sitting duck so yeah, he yeah. did not want to attack Monmouth until he had tents he waits for these tents uh, and then finally decides he's got the tents and he now approach uh, and basically try and draw Monmouth out of Bridgewater which he does and he advances t- towards Bridgewater and the original plan is to camp at Western Zoyland but his adjutant general finds a better location at Western Zoyland and that's where they end up camping At the same time, Monmouth has decided that he's got to break out and he's got two options to break out. One is to basically make a very dangerous crossing through what um, Daniel Defoe called the the lower way, which is Bridgewater across down the fells up to Axbridge and into Mm -hmm. Bristol, which is a pretty much a single track road. It's dangerous. It's likely to flood. It's been raining quite a lot. So it's going to be boggy and marshy. It's a high-risk manoeuvre. The second option is to take the lower way, which effectively runs along the base of the Poldens up to Wales and from Wales out. And with Favisham at, at, at Somerton, it looks quite good. It, he's got enough distance to sort of just about make that. However, with, with Favisham marching to Wiston's Island, that opportunity is broken and he then watches through his um, effective telescope and identifies that, that he cannot march off. It's too dangerous. So he he delays it until the night. But then as, he, as the Royal Army gathers up, he then, he's watching. And again, remember, you have to remember, more than this experienced officer, he knows what should be done and what duties should be happening. And he can see the government forces deploying, he can see the government forces setting out tents. But what he spots is that, or think, thinks, is they're not fortifying their camp properly. Uh, and they're relying on, if you like, the natural obstacles to, to fortify the camp. Mm-hmm. Which, in the face of enemy, is not really the, the done thing, but it, it's acceptable. What he doesn't realise is that Faversham's also following the rule book and he's deployed quite a well-structured guard, a main guard, covering his, his camp. But Monmouth then decides he's going to attack the camp. And I believe, against other Hosterians, but my, I believe that his objective is actually, when he, he decides to attack the camp, is he wants his cavalry to break into the camp. do as much disruption amongst the infantry as possible, giving them a bloody nose, you know, beat them up, so that they don't follow him up. Basically, it's a and then uses infantry to cover that withdrawal. And everything looks at that because the way he structures his army, the way he marches, supports that hypothesis. Mm. Now, Monmouth decides he's going to attack the camp, and he marches out between 10 and 11 o'clock. He's on the road, and he takes some back routes, again, using guides. And this is where, again, history books will tell you he you know stumbled around a little bit, and you know he's, he didn't realize these ditches existed and all that sort of stuff. His own account, which was recently published, he says he built little bridges. So he knows these ditches are there. He knows he's going to cross waterways. So his his infantry are using bridges to cross these ditches that he's made up. So he knows this stuff's going on. Um, and his real plan is to, to, to surprise the camp and break in. And from the last ditch to the campsite is about half a mile across fairly open uh, moorland. But what well, he is is undone effectively by the government patrols. So there's a particular party of of vedettes who are guarding the last crossing point, and they spot the weak cavalry. The, they set up a warning shot. They retire to the covering the covering squadron under Compton, and you know, bless the the Monmouth troops. They're not, you know, they've had you know, some time to train up, but certainly cavalry manoeuvres are more complex when you're crossing ditches and you know, defiles and things. So Mombasmen have to cross the defile, the ditch, the cavalry have to reform, and then they have to advance across open country um, to reach another crossing to, to get behind the government camp. The government cavalry attack them, hit them as they're reforming, and break two squadrons of weak cavalry, which then effectively route back through the rest of the re army, causing lots of chaos and disruption. and At the same time, sending a message back to the government camp that the Whigs are attacking. And that's pretty much the defeat of Monmouth because at that point he knows he's got about 20 minutes before the government army is formed up to get his infantry across the last ditch to deploy. And then he's got to change his orders and get his infantry to attack to support the cavalry rather than to become a, a, a covering line for the cavalry to fall behind. And that's really where this battle really starts to go wrong for him because he advances across country only to find that the government army is deployed and ra- waiting for him at, from the camp to you know, to then force, try and get his men to cross over. His cavalry do reform, and then some cavalry do, do try and break into the camp, but one group, because they've lost their guide in the chaos, misses the upper plunger and ends up at the lower plunger. The other one does reach it. They do break some royal cavalry, and they do almost get to the rear of the government army, but unfortunately, the superior government cavalry take effect, and that's really if you like, where most of the historians will then put, you know, this famous Churchill manoeuvre of bringing the two battalions across, and they hit the flank of the of the Whig army, and they, they're victorious. Unfortunately, that by the time those two battalions reach, Mormont's army has already retreated out of the battle area, because what happens is the ca- government cavalry, while the Whig forces are engaged in a firefight with government infantry, the, weak, the government cavalry start to sweep around the flanks, particularly the, the Whig's left flank, mm. and that's really the, the Monmouth sees that, and he orders his army to retreat but unfortunately, at that point the the sort of central unit the, the green regiment get broken by the cavalry, and that's really the end of that wing, if you like of the army and Although some of the units retreat folks' retreats, the white regiment, the yellow regiment, and the red regiment retreat back a good distance, the rest of the army is destroyed, and then there's a rearguard action which Faversham brings his army forward and but he decides he doesn't want to chase Monmouth's army into the cornfields, and a rant over now. But almost because James II has Monmouth leaving halfway through the battle, which is wrong because Monmouth actually, in his own account, describes the end of the battle. He says, "I don't leave the army until the fighting in the lanes takes place, and the lanes are all the little trackways through the cornfields." So, yeah, lots of different discrepancies here, but ultimately. Yeah, you know, it, it's a good attempt at beating and it's really good military practice on the side of Faversham that wins the battle, not some miracle of Churchill.
1: Yeah. yeah, and not some piss-poor army of peasants on the invading side. No,
3: no. Okay,
1: so we can't really talk about Monmouth without really talking about the execution. Um, possibly my second favourite execution in history, because I do like a gruesome one. Is it as botched as history paints?
3: It? Yeah, that is that is a pretty much um, yeah. You, I can't fault history on it. its a painting of, of Monmouth's execution. It, it is a real, <sighs> a real botch up by my catch ah, yeah. yeah. and him. Yeah, good old catch. An interesting catch comes in later on. and He, he says he can't kill more than nineteen people in a day, which is during the bloody sizes. So yeah, he catch plays a part, and yeah, he's 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 got a blunt axe. He uses a knife which doesn't work to try and cut the final tendons you know it's a real bodged yeah bodged job you know when you strike an axe on someone's neck and they then sit up it's it's not really a good sign that things are working properly
1: can kill ni- can kill 19 men in one day he has difficulty killing one person at one edu- one execution exactly
3: yeah when he's got all the faith he hasn't got anything to f- worry about you know he's got hasn't got a draw and quarter them or anything he's just got to cut the head off
1: yeah it's got to be
2: the easiest yeah. bit. <laughs> okay, so what is the actual legacy of Monmouth's rebellion what carries forward throughout history from there what
3: well, the real legacy and this is you yeah, there, there's the real legacy is the glorious revolution and this is another bit of a, a thing for me is that when you look at the slogans, the even the even the sort of the what's on the banners and the flags when William arrives, it's it might as well just been taken out of Monmouth's scrapbook. So you know, the Glorious Revolution is basically a replay of Monmouth's invasion, except this time William III's got shed loads of more soldiers, but the objective is the same, the supporters are the same. There's even a couple of battalions of Whig infantry who fought at Sedgemoor and two colonels who fought at Sedgemoor. In William's army, so his legacy really is that it, it 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 set the scene really for James II's downfall because James's cruelty um, afterwards, and, and some people say it's not cruel; it's just normal. But James was was you know it, it wasn't Judge Jeffreys that executed people; it was James II who actually said, "I want him to die. I want him to die. I want him to die. and I want him to die, and he can go. He asked oh, sell him off to my friends." He was the person finalizing that list yeah so you know he, he had pretty much hands-on experience so the legacy is really the fact that we in the united kingdom anyway we're following pretty much the parliament over um the king and the monarchy is is is, yeah, is subservient to, to the which is actually what monmouth and his supporters wanted that's all they wanted in life and it took a lot of deaths but they achieved that in the end but with um yeah additional support and a yeah, you know, another reason for the the Dutch to invade, which was again French interference in Europe and a and a war. So, yeah.
2: how do we fix this myth? Uh, what would you like to see done about
3: it to stop people believing? First of all, I'd like to see the Pitchfork Rebellion removed from all propaganda, because it's just it's just totally it belittles the efforts and it belittles the army and it stops. Yeah. It's one of the reasons people haven't researched it properly because it's a pitchfork army, bunch of peasants let's write this off really quickly and we can do that in a paragraph in a book. Or I can write a whole book about it, but actually not write about anything that's...
1: You, you say that, Steve. You know, you, you mentioned there that people don't research it because it's a bunch of peasants, yet the Peasants' Revolt is one of the most researched things in in medieval history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why why can't we yeah. research a bunch of peasants, even if they are?
3: Because because the they're, they're rebellion against James, and James is the yeah, James and Charles the two brothers are untouchable and because you know James wrote an account and his account is God and gospel and therefore anything that goes against that is wrong. I mean, it, it's put it this way and, and I'm going to go off on one because I am writing a biography of Lucy Walter but I'll go off on this tangent a little bit which is if you accept that Monmouth was legitimate, you undermine every piece of history since that point, the whole Jacobite cause is undermined. So, if you have any Jacobite sympathies, you cannot write that Monmouth's cause was a legitimate cause. So yep. you un- you belittle it. You call it yep. the Pitchfork Rebellion. You talk about you know Monmouth hambling around Som- Somerset. You talk about all the other things you have to talk about to make sure that no one takes it seriously. And it was actually a really close cut thing. James was scared that they would win. You know, he had all the intelligence in the world. He knew what's going on, and He was scared. He wouldn't have put all that soul, mobilised the whole British army to try and tackle this rebellion, which effectively wasn't a rebellion, it was an invasion, if he wasn't scared of it. And that's the fact. I mean, it was an invasion. It wasn't a rebellion. It was a planned operation to change the government of the United Kingdom.
1: Well, thank you very much, Steve, because as ever, that's given us a wealth to consider in an area that I'll confess I knew very little of until tonight. Uh, And I was as guilty of the pitchfork rebellion myth as anybody. Well, hush your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, no, thank you very much for coming on and giving us that.
3: Let me uh, air my my grievances. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know
1: more about Steve's work, then you can start by buying the excellent books that he's published so far. And he does have another one on the way, as he says. Uh, and we'll have links to those in the History Rage bookshop. Uh, you can read up on his excellent website, www.warwalks.com. And uh, we'll also have a link to that in the show notes. And you can follow him on Twitter at Warwalks. But once again, Steve, thank you very much for bringing 400 years of anger to our podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Baffel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe to us on Patreon as your £5 per month will get you episodes a whole season early. The invite to put questions to future guests and of course the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, thanks a lot for listening.